Hi, I'm Elena. And I'm Sophia. And you are listening to Bookshelf Remix, a spoiler-full podcast where two scholars read pop fiction by underrepresented authors and geek out with deep dives. Today, we're talking all things Sex and Vanity by Kevin Kwan, which just came out in a beautiful paperback edition. Sex and Vanity is a perfect summer read. Opening at an opulent wedding in Capri, would it be Kevin Kwan if we didn't get over-the-top weddings and proposals? More about that later. The story follows young artist and ingenue Lucy Churchill on a journey of self-discovery. Part romance, part coming of age, and coming to terms with her complicated heritage. Her mother is Chinese-American, and her father was an old New York wasp. Lucy must juggle an international playboy and a wholesome architect while also confronting her own internalized racism. This novel takes us from a jet-set-style vacation along the Amalfi Coast to the rarefied drawing rooms of New York's Upper East Side and the Hamptons with humor, playfulness, and a healthy heap of lifestyle porn. It is delicious, delicious escapism. Elena, how did you like the book? I enjoyed it. You know, it was beautiful to have like descriptions of Southern Italy and the food and the lavish wedding. So yeah, I mean, I came in a bit more skeptical. I had never read any Kevin Kwan books before. And I didn't know what to expect. Like people I know who've read Crazy Rich Asians are like, oh, you know, it's just like trash. (laughs) No, But they, they say it in the kind of way that people talk about this kind of book where you're just like oh it's my guilty pleasure you know it was like my compulsive reading but you know it has no literary merit which I think we'll discuss is not the case with this book at all but that's kind of how I went into it I was being like okay this will be like a trashy romance and actually it made me want to read more romance and more romance by Asian authors and by BIPOC authors so in that way I'm really glad that we picked this because it allowed me to confront some of my prejudice (laughs) and much like uh, Lucy confronts her internalized racism I had to confront my internalized misogyny yeah pride and prejudice Elena style (laughs) Elena reads (laughs) oh my god now I feel like I have to defend crazy rich Asians what I like about both sex and vanity and in general about Kevin Kwan's writing and I don't want to say that I don't have any critiques at all but something that I enjoy about him is the way that he kind of finds a balance between that perfect kind of frivolous summer read and you can read his books for the escapism and just have it be that but also there's always these subtle critiques that I really enjoy in his writing as well like in Crazy Rich Asians I think it's little hints about colonialism and racism that if you read closely you don't necessarily get in the film version actually you get a lot more of that in the novel and that's one reason I like the novel better than the film is that ever not the case but yeah and I think we got the same thing in uh, Sex and Vanity which is a kind of nice combination of class critique, racial critique, and escapism at the same time. So I really enjoyed that. And I just felt like I really needed the trip to Capri when I started this novel. I kind of melted immediately into it with like a sigh of relief of like, oh, yes, just transport me away from my small Manhattan apartment (laughs) to get me to the beach. I'm just going to imagine that that's where I am. So I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's It's kind of the other side of the coin of Mexican Gothic. When you think about it, Mexican Gothic was like deeply atmospheric and also had 
themes of colonialism and eugenics and things like that. And here we see the lighter version, literally in the sun, glitzy, fashionable. So we have the really luminous kind of what it's fun to be in this genre, which would be like romance in this case. Like it's a pretty straightforward plot of like girl meets boy. It doesn't work out because meets other boy is going to marry said other boy does not marry them goes back to first boy like it's a pretty standard romance plot but at the same time I feel that Kevin Kwan does weave in a very powerful and in my case very moving depiction of what it is like to be biracial in a way and in, in this case like because Lucy is half Chinese half white I identified more with that. Like, I I don't see a lot of that in the media. And so I felt that although it was all very extravagant and you can really enjoy the luxe feel of everything, there was something very relatable. Yeah, I think what was really interesting reading this book directly after Mexican Gothic is just the way that the two books really spoke to each other or confronted a lot of the same issues but in different ways so mexican gothic is a gothic novel and goth i think gothic literature in general always sort of takes societal problems and heightens them through the introduction of non-realism i guess is one way of describing it i don't know supernatural yeah supernatural it's not really magic which is the first word i was reaching for but yeah so i think what we get is like a very on the nose portrayal in that book of this is how racism is pervasive in mexican society but it's in very like broad strokes writ large kind of looming and very obvious whereas i feel like what we get in Sex and Vanity because it is a romance and it's meant to be set in, yes, a very opulent world or a very glitzy world, but also still our world. Like romance, and I think still in this particular style has to be, has to have an element of realism to it. And so I think what he offers us is more like microaggressions and the way that those microaggressions stack up to create very large consequences in terms of like how our protagonist develops and I found that really compelling just and very relatable like you said to be able to see as like a mixed ethnic person myself because I'm Mexican-American and then on my mom's side just like very white (laughs) mix of like British Isles it would seem so when I see characters like this as well I find I recognize those microaggressions you know the constant being asked oh what's your background or the sort of exoticization that Lucy experiences a lot throughout this novel and I highlighted for the next episode like a number of those just like little subtle cues of Lucy being exoticized throughout the novel and there was something therapeutic about that to see I think the experience of being mixed race or biracial represented especially in those in those small moments that can hit so hard yeah and have that introduced you know, as she's just meeting someone new, and I, I highlighted a quote about, you know, her cousin introducing her, and Lucy thinking in her mind, okay, I've heard this spiel like a million times, I know exactly. And she's like, oh yeah, and her mother is Chinese and her father is American. And she's like, my mom is also American. Like She was born in Seattle. And this is the kind of thing where you're just like, oh, I have my white family member who now has to like white splain 
<laughs> my race to someone we just met. You're like, great. So we've mentioned a few times now that this is a romance. And as I said, like, yes, there is a plot of ultimately Lucy choosing like who she really loves and who she wants to spend her life with. But we were discussing a bit off mic that this isn't really a contemporary romance. Since reading this book, I've I've tried to read more romance and it's definitely not one sex and vanity does not have a lot of sex in it. I'm just going to straight be straightforward and say like if you're going here for the erotic content, it is not there. Which is a bit misleading given the title, but I think we we kind of need to discuss that. Like it is a romance, but it doesn't fit neatly into the publishing category of contemporary romance. Yeah, I think it's not it's not genre romance. So I in that sense I would almost put it in the category of chick lit, kind of also like You've Got Mail, for example. I think yes, of it as like yeah. very Nora Ephrony kind of chiclet, focused on a female protagonist and her life story and development, but with a romance driving that development. Yes, so definitely Lucy's romance with George and more generally her reaction to George's existence in her life is what drives kind of her self-discovery, which is why this is in a way a very light and frothy coming-of-age story. It's really about Lucy's journey and how she relates to herself and how she processes the grief of losing her father at a young age and how she fits within her upper-class like white family, how she relates to her Chinese mother, how she deals with her attraction to George, who we'll go into a bit, but it's definitely more a type of Jane Austen, Edith Wharton type of romance. And this is apparent also in Quan's references. He's constantly like referencing Austen in multiple ways, while at the same time also plugging kind of Chinese pop culture, which I do appreciate as well. Like, they list a, a few films that they should watch and all these things. But it's clear to the reader that Quan has Austin in mind and Wharton in mind when he's writing this book. Yeah, he's got some very, I think, direct references to Wharton, actually. Like, um, th- at the beginning of the novel, there's a reference to the Taiwan Tattler. And in Edith Wharton, there's always the town tattler is constantly oh. <laughs> showing up uh, as, like, a gossip rag that people read so I definitely picked up on that one where I was like oh the fact that he used Tattler here is definitely very Wartonian and then also later in the novel one of the characters makes a film and calls it the glimpses of the moon which is the name of a Wharton book so it's not an adaptation or a reference to the book specifically like oh they're reading the glimpses of the moon or something as obvious as that but it takes the name of a Wharton book and transposes it onto (laughs) this other thing in the novel, a film. So that was fun. Yeah, there's definitely, there are just these elements of him kind of, he also nods at his own books, which is kind of funny. (laughs) Uh, Astrid, I'm pretty sure shows up and Astrid shows up. And I feel like it can't be anyone other than Astrid from Crazy Rich Asians. And I think Kitty also from, well, she shows up all through all three other books, but she also comes up, I think, married to a new guy. So if you, they're, they're very fleeting. So there's moments. a verse. There is, yeah. <laughs> and they're, I think they're cropping up 
probably in relation to uh, Isabel Chu, who is the catalyst for George and Lucy's worlds colliding. She's this Taiwanese heiress who grew up in New York near Lucy and is getting married again. This is a very, also a very like Wartonian Austinian moment. She's getting married to a Italian count. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is very, I forget the exact word for it, but there's, there's like a phrase for these millionaire princesses or something like million dollar princesses, something like that. But that like genre of Gilded Age heiress who would marry her family would marry her to a landed aristocrat, like someone with a title in Europe for the status. And that what that landed aristocrat got in return was the money to support their sort of dying estates. And it's like Downton Abbey. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. Like Downton Abbey. So I think we kind of get that here, except in a more frothy kind of like Isabel and the Count de Vecchi are actually in love. But. Yeah, and it's it's well done in the sense that it's, yes, it's the reason why all our characters are together, so it's important, but it's also in the background, which again, I think is a feature in the kind of cultural commentary that happens in Austin and all these things. You know, our, our characters have their struggles, but there's also this backdrop that's also being commented on in a way. And to be fair, like to anyone listening, I don't want this to sound like we're saying this is a very kind of pretentious book. It is not. It is very tongue-in-cheek, and these are kind of Easter eggs that I think a lot of readers will pick up because the same type of readers who do enjoy Emma and Pride and Prejudice will kind of like this book. But it's it's not pedantic in any heavy-handed way. Actually, I think Quan does a really smart thing where he puts some of his commentary as part footnotes so he'll have like oh so and so said he bought this coat like in the 2012 season of Burberry and then there'll be a footnote being like actually this was only issued in 2015 (laughs) and so he's lying (laughs) and so you have like a series of footnotes that are commenting on what's going on yeah or someone who gets a facelift but says they haven't and there's a footnote outing their facelift (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's excellent it's like a, a much more enjoyable lady whistle down yeah and very it's yeah it's definitely very in that sense kind of bridgerton kind of gossip girl very playful what i like to say about this book is that it can be enjoyed at two levels on the one hand you can enjoy it as that like escape to capri and to new york and getting to see us like i'll never travel in that kind of style anywhere so i always really enjoy Quan just for the luxury of it and imagining that other world for a little bit just kind of briefly escaping to a place where you get to sit on a private beach is fun to imagine but there's also one of the things that I like about it that I think makes it maybe more enjoyable than say a Bridgerton is I feel like I spent a lot of my time watching Bridgerton kind of flinching at just the things that they stood out too much as inaccurate in ways that disrupted my willing suspension of disbelief and I think this novel has the kind of depth that allows you to kind of enter into the spirit of things and not feel kind of dragged out of it like it maintained my willing suspension of disbelief a lot better in general and I think if you there's something you can always return to in the book which is fun it doesn't feel like a book that 
you read it once and give it away and go, oh, done with that. Mm -hmm. Um, On to the next. It definitely feels like something you could come back to and find depth in if that's what you want, while also just being a great way to travel. Like, I'm ready to travel to Capri again in this book. Oh, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) I I just want to go to Capri and, like, take pictures of everything they saw. I was like, oh. I know. Yeah. When I read some of the quotes, even like going back over it for today, I was just like, I want to reread this section. I want to go back. I don't even want to read it for the plot. I just want to read it to pretend I'm in Capri. So some other things I think that we wanted to talk about in... Uh, so we talked a little bit about the coming of age tale. I don't think I ever realized that Jane Austen, all of Jane Austen's books in some ways are coming of age tales. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe this book made me realize that most books are coming of age tales in some way because do you really have a novel if you don't have a character going through some kind of internal trajectory where they grow like they start off kind of young and naive and yeah and so there are definitely many ways to engage the reader that are part that kind of break the fourth wall in a really fun way But I think for now, we'll just take a break. And when we come back, we will introduce you to two very important characters, one of which is George and the other one is Capri itself. (laughs) We'll be right back. Do you have a book you want to recommend or a theme you want us to explore? Contact us at bookshelfremix at gmail.com or fill out our suggestion form in our link tree in our Instagram bio at bookshelfremix. The mid-morning haze cleared a few miles outside of Naples, and from the helicopter, Capri suddenly appeared like a glistening rock as if the gods had cast a giant emerald down into the middle of the sea. Lucy, 92nd Street Y Nursery School, rarely brown, class of 16, glanced down at the deep blue waters, wondering how warm it was and how soon she could jump in. She loved the feel of ocean water on her skin. Me too, Lucy. Me too. (laughs) I've been dreaming of taking a beach vacation by the way i know (laughs) i've never wanted one before in my life but (laughs) this is the time (laughs) like i really want one and i just want like the sound of the waves and you know uh... but you know i hate sand (laughs) i hate walking on sand (laughs) i need to be reminded but this is maybe the best way to experience the beach to be honest (laughs) just reading about it so is the beach your the favorite part of Capri for you in this book? Um, I mean, it's part of my favorite. I think I loved everything about Capri, but another moment for me that just really transported me is actually there are a few lines about the public square and every, in my experience, sort of every Italian town, a lot of like Southern French towns as well, or Spanish towns have one of these main public squares so it just really made me yearn to like go sit in a public square yeah yeah drink a coffee people watch just relax in the shade of some awning and exist so these are the lines that 
uh, stood out to me. They strolled into the main public square where a gleaming white clock tower stood opposite from the historic cathedral of Santo Stefan. Four competing outdoor cafes lining the square bustled with chic patrons sipping their cappuccinos, chatting, and people watching from their bistro tables. Yeah, that is iconic. It really is something that happens. But at the same time, see, for me, Capri was really, it was really nice to go there in this book. But I have a, this is my own idiosyncrasy. I have an aversion to touristy towns that kind of start feeling like Disney World, Mm -hmm. where they were literally saying like, oh, you know, people couldn't bring plastic bottles and all these like day tours because it's so expensive to live there. And you kind of have this influx of new people every day. And I kind of felt that way when I went to see Bruges. I was just like, at 5 p.m., everyone is gone. And it's just, like, so dead. And I was like, this is terrifying. So at first I was like, oh, Capri, okay, beautiful sea. Obviously, there's a lot of nod to the cultural importance of Capri for artists, which I thought was really cool. But for me, the scene that really got me was when Lucy goes into a little side alley to buy sandals from a leather worker, a cobbler. And some of the listeners might know, but I lived in Rome for four years between the ages of eight and 12. And so I know what it's like to be around a lot of tourists. I know what it's like to have like really side streets that kind of get lost. And this depiction of an Italian cobbler is spot on. You might think like, oh, this is kind of reductive and antiquated because it's the 21st century like no there are these places that still exist i don't know how they survive but like the i imagine the leather strewn everywhere there's absolutely no window display it's really dark and it smells of leather and you have this like homely couple that's working there and they've been working there for 50 years and Lucy makes a comment like these are one of a kind like they're made to her foot like she'll never find these anywhere in any designer store but it's so unassuming and sure okay there's a romanticization that happens but for me that was that really spoke to my lived experience I'm just like wandering down like streets adjacent to the really popular spots Mm -hmm. and these gems of like artistry or just like very generous people who are just like very good at whatever they do (laughs) yeah 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 I will say I did sort of wonder when I read my outdoor cafe section this like four competing outdoor cafes lining the square reminded me a lot of Venice and the main square there and how you have these like very expensive almost like unaffordable probably for it wouldn't be like a place you would go every day, right? Like you do it just because you're there for a little bit and you want the experience of sitting in that square. It feels, a lot of squares do feel very touristy in that sense. Like they've learned to cater to visitors rather than to a local population. And I sort of wondered like to what extent are the squares actually a more of a tourist activity? (laughs) But I still love it because I just miss going somewhere. I know, no, for sure. Speaking of Kevin Kwan and eligible Asian men, can you tell me more about what you thought of 
George, especially since when we talked Mexican Gothic, you were like, Hugo, Hugo. <laughs> Thanks for teeing me up for my favorite subject. <laughs> Elena. Um, Yeah, you know, it was really interesting. Actually, I don't know that I would have had as much of a critique of the Hugo moment in Mexican Gothic if I hadn't just read Sex and Vanity, because there was something about reading this book that really crystallized what made me sort of unhappy about the Francis of it all in uh, Mexican Gothic, who was the, I guess, romantic lead we got don't feel like he was the romantic lead we deserved (laughs) (laughs) more on that you can go back and listen to our episode still salty about hugo uh but yeah so what and what stood out to me actually about sex and vanity every time i want to talk about this book for some reason i have to like hold it in my hands because that like helps me concentrate But yeah, so one of the things that immediately stood out to me about Sex and Vanity or that got me thinking a little bit differently about Mexican Gothic was that we get an Asian male romantic love interest, which is unusual because usually, I don't know, I don't know a lot about this. My husband is a little bit more into sort of Asian American activism because he's a Chinese American person. So he has mentioned to me before that Asian American men and I think Asian men in general in the United States are never seen as masculine enough Mm -hmm. or masculine enough to be like the ideal heteronormative representation of a romantic love interest. And so I think this is one of the very political things, subtle political details about Kevin Kwan's fiction across the board is that he always features not even an Asian American, but always an Asian love interest, whether that's, I think, a Singaporean kind of scion in Crazy Rich Asians. So not not Chinese, but Sinophone, always Sinophone male love interests. And then in this one, it's George who lives in Sydney, I guess, but is also also seems to be more representative of more of an Asian man than a Western Asian man. Yeah, he's definitely, yeah, he was, like, he's at Berkeley right now, but before then he was, like, completely educated in Asia and definitely, yeah, is part of the Asian scene, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, you get a sense, I don't know, maybe it's Lucy's own exoticizing gaze doesn't necessarily pick up on the nuances of George's background, but we definitely get him presented as kind of the representative of Asia. And this is part of her being deterred from him in some ways is her own internalized racism where she actually doesn't think of Asian men. And we'll get a lot more of this in part two that she only ever dates white American men. And we get a little bit of a hint of it, I think in part one where Georgia is described as not being her typical type. Mm Mm-hmm which is a euphemism, I think, in part one for he's Asian and not white. So there's definitely just this element of really playing around with those stereotypes and then also breaking them and saying, no, we're going to give you a man of color as the love interest. Because typically there's a lot more kind of openness to white men dating women of color than there is white women dating 
men of color, which is kind of interesting. Uh, one thing that I found actually is that people will assume, for example, when I talk about my background, that my mother is the Mexican one and my mm-hmm. father is the white one. Well, growing up, so my mother is French Canadian white and my father is Filipino. And growing up, every other like mixed couple that was Filipino and Can- like white Canadian was the man was white the woman was Filipina. A lot of it is because a lot of Filipino women leave the Philippines to work abroad as nurses and caregivers and things like that. But yeah, it was definitely my father, my entire life, was the only Asian man in a mixed couple that I knew personally. So definitely seeing this here, again, like you relate to it like in a different way because your husband is Chinese-American and my father is Filipino-Canadian. And so this is a part of our actual lives like for us it's not weird but it is not often that it happens in these books and I mean in a way it's a bit frustrating that we don't get more from George but at the same time it's kind of like well why can't we just get vacant beautiful inoffensive love interests that are Asian like sure if you're gonna have tons of those anyway in the genre why not you know it's for me I found it Kevin a bit Kwan, annoying. we want a George spinoff that's what we're saying <laughs> yes. we would like a novel about George's early life yes or pull a Stephanie Meyer and just redo this book again but from George's perspective yes. <laughs> Yes, I want to see George's internal journey about like why he decides to pursue this woman, even though she kind of doesn't deserve him from how she acts around them. She's so awful to him. And I would describe George as a Mr. Darcy light. Like another way this is very much like Jane Austen is that he's kind of the reserved type that is so wealthy that he doesn't need to worry about fashion. (laughs) Uh, so she's always kind of dissing him on like wearing cargo shorts and like polo shirts and just like walking around not caring and so she finds lucy finds this very irksome she's like oh he doesn't try he thinks he's better than me he thinks he's better than us and at the same time she has this incredible chemistry with him and again like you were saying sophia all of these things that often come up when people discuss their dating lives, it's like, oh, he's just not my type. Or, oh, he's like really quiet, which means he must be judging me. All of these things intersect, are at the intersection between, you know, veiled racism and also deep insecurities about like, I really want him to like me, but also he's not worthy of me. (laughs) It's just like this very strange thing. So yeah, I I guess we get most of George in part one in Capri and he's very much a package deal in my mind with this idea of summer adventure. Mm -hmm. And eventually it culminates with them. He's going down on her and they get caught being filmed by a drone that obviously these super rich people have hired for their wedding. <laughs> so that is that is the moment. That is the Lydia running away with Wickham. That is the... She went into a man's flat all alone, Edith Wharton style. This is like the moment that is a bit ridiculous in the 21st century, especially if you've... But George seen... does the right thing, by the way. <laughs> Unlike yeah. Wickham, who compromises her identity. He runs yeah. off after the... After the cameraman, and he gets that video back. He, 
He destroys that drone. Also, I I really appreciated that the act that was caught was cunnilingus and not mm-hmm. penetration. And mm-hmm. I was like, yes, <laughs> thank you, Kevin Kwan. <laughs> like, yeah. she didn't have her reputation sullied because... Like, <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Someone forced yeah. himself on her without enough foreplay. <laughs> like, yeah. At least she enjoyed some of it. so yes that is kind of what really draws them apart uh drastically charlotte goes into karen mode being like oh my god this is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you don't you know and i think probably Uh part of that is is she reacts that way because george is asian also i think that that's a subtext of it this is Mm. this is also not the right guy for your you to be linked with so Like, we can't spin this. We can't be like, now they're dating. Obviously, that would be ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah, you're not going to be able to marry him, so. And so this is where I think it starts looking a lot like persuasion. I know Sophia doesn't like persuasion, but I think this is where it happens, where Lucy gets convinced. She's partially already ready to be convinced, but she's just like, I really like this person, but he's not right and also by acknowledging that he's not right, that brings me closer to my family in some strange way. And so I get to keep the sort of comfort. And although I say no to what would have been possibly fun, I now make a choice. I close a door and this settles a certain part of my identity. And I think I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. Because obviously, otherwise, it would just be like, oh, sex scandal. Now... Lucy needs to go away and Charlotte needs to make sure everything falls into place so that we forget this and Lucy can move on. But I think that it was a moment where Lucy made a choice. Yeah. And that's how we get George, the perfect love interest that we would have liked more of and also like more internal. I was I was saying to um, Elena as well before we started recording that a lot of George's entrances are an awful lot like that kind of Colin Firth moment of coming out of the pond in Pride and Prejudice, which is just such a bizarre moment in that film. Like, why is he swimming in this stagnant water? Nevertheless, it's an iconic moment, perhaps for that reason, because it's so ridiculously campy and he comes out sort of glistening in water. And I feel like that is George's every appearance is just various emergences from (laughs) glistening water or coming out of a tree line. He always like surprises Lucy. She'll like turn around and he's there, windswept in the sunshine. Or she'll be like lurking on his Instagram, looking at his abs while he's like a surfer dude. Yeah, he's very much there to be eye candy. And but at the same time that does create the tension of like she's clearly attracted to him. But she refuses to give in to that. I think on the surface it would be like out of a sense of propriety. But as we see throughout the book, her relationship to propriety is very much linked to her internalized racism and her difficulty living as a half Asian woman within an essentially white family. Yeah. And I really appreciated that. I really, I liked that. And I really appreciate that Kevin Kwan gives us a love interest of color an Asian man love interest because it did make me reflect back on Mexican Gothic and think you know yeah like how could Francis as a love interest have been 
more nuanced, more critical. I'm not saying that he couldn't couldn't still be the love interest, but I would have liked to have seen maybe a little bit more introspection on what it means that our kind of defiant mixed race character of Noemi is rejecting all of Mexico City's most eligible bachelors in order to go with this anemic inbred white man. I think it's time that you tell us where we can find you. Right. Yeah. You can find me on Instagram at The Metropolitanist, at Metropolitanist on Twitter, or on my website, MaisonMetropolitanist.com. I post all things related to my research areas on those platforms. Elena, where can people find you? You can find my personal Twitter at Elena G. Mamoril. On Instagram, I'm at Spinoodler. And my website is just my name, ElenaGotivamoril.com. It is long. It is my name. I will not apologize. It'll be in the show notes. You can find it. And if you want more of my voice, you can listen to my other podcast, Philosophy Casting Call, where I interview underrepresented philosophers. And Sophia, where can people find more about Bookshelf Remix? You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Bookshelf Remix and rate, review, and follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or wherever you listen. This helps more people discover the show. You can email us at bookshelfremix at gmail.com. Our transcripts live on ko-fi.com slash brpod for, for everyone. Linked in the description. While you're there, please consider supporting us. With your monthly support, we will be able to offer bonus content like a secret Discord, live watches, mailbags, and more. See you in two weeks. Bye. Bye.